Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. Your relationship with money and your capacity to digest, you know, past pain and loss. And everybody loses money from time to time. If, if you don't, you're not really trying hard enough. This is Property Investory, where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyron Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with active investor and property strategist, Selena Kilkarni. She shares the ups and downs of her illustrious career in the corporate world, leaving senior roles for a family life and what happens when a multi-million dollar subdivision turns into a disastrous joint venture where the other party took all and fled. With a wealth of knowledge to share, acquired over a lustrous career that saw her working all over the world, Kokani is passionate about helping business owners achieve financial freedom early on in their property journey. So I work with uh, business owners to achieve financial freedom early using alternative strategies um, by giving them access to highly curated non-traditional property investment opportunities. And uh, you know, I divide my time between supporting clients and spending time finding the best deal makers and advisors out there. One rule that Kokani lives by, which has obviously made her very successful in the industry, is to walk her talk. She's adamant that in order to be effective and share her wisdom, she must have laser-like focus when she is working. I generally don't start work before 10 in the morning and um, I'm usually gone by 3 and I don't work Fridays. Uh, so, you know, I've, I've learned that if I, you know, if I want to be effective and I want to help people, um, I've just got to, you know, be very focused when I do come in. Um, but I love just talking to people one-on-one -on -one about where they're at, where they're stuck um, because I've spent a lot of time doing a lot of different things. I've, I've got a great capacity to diagnose where people are experiencing friction. Um, and then on top of that, I'm, I, I think my superpower is probably making friends with people. So I've got a real, the thing I'm probably most proud of is I've got a fantastic network of, of really A-grade people who, um, who support me in the program and the work that I do. Kukani considers the professional path that she took which has ultimately got her to where she is today, to be very meandering. So I was actually born in the UK um, uh, and we migrated to Australia when I was nine. Um, my, my ethnic origins is uh, I'm actually Indian uh, but never really grew up there and um, you know, I, we, we moved to a small town called Lithgow which I'm sure many of you know and then uh, eventually settled in Canberra. I had originally wanted to become a vet uh, but realised I, I just didn't have the stomach for blood and guts um, and decided to study accounting as a bit of a stopgap um, until I figured out what I really wanted to do. But it was probably, uh, you know, my father's illness uh, when I was about 10 that was probably the subconscious driver to understand 
you know, how to build a great relationship with money because I saw the impact that his illness had on him. Um, yeah, and, you know, I think accounting was kind of like I was never a fit, so I, I jokingly call myself a reformed accountant now. I'm still a chartered accountant. I'm actually curious a little bit more to learn about the change or the migration from, say, UK to Australia because you're there obviously for nine years when you grew up there. I'm curious, what was the childhood like over in the UK before you moved? I would say it was idyllic. Um, we lived in a small country town. There would have been, I would guess, maybe 300 people in this town. There was one fish and chip shop and one tiny supermarket and and that was all. And, uh, you know, the move to Australia came because during that period of time it was, um, I don't know if you know much about the Thatcher years, but it was a pretty grim time to be living in the UK. Um, Unemployment was very high. My, My father was a double engineering degree holder but had been unemployed for six months and I I think he saw an opportunity to come to Australia and, and took it and saw it as an opportunity to get a fresh start. But, I mean, we literally came here with, um, you know, a handful of suitcases and, and nothing else and we moved into a govy house in, in Lithgow. Um, you know, it, it was, you know, I, I don't have any bad memories of it whatsoever but, you know, I knew that it would have been pretty rough by modern standards. You know, we had a small kerosene heater it was freezing cold all the time. Still is at this at this time of year too. Still is, yeah. But look, I have great memories of Lithgow and then um, it was probably around that time um, in transitioning to Australia that my dad found out that he'd, um, you know, he had a major illness and told that he only had a few months left to live. And so he took the opportunity to move us to, to Canberra um, where he, you know, he, his, his primary concern was how were we going to survive after he passed. Um, but fortunately for him, some technology was created and he got told, oh, you, you've got another three months. And then it became another three months. And, um, you know, I, I think, I mean, ultimately he went on and lived another 30 years, which was the shocking part. But the, um, the technology that kept him alive, no one really knew much about it. So we, we didn't know, but it, it definitely, you know, flicked a switch in him. So, you know, and he, my parents both really sheltered my sister and I from all of that. So we didn't know. But when he, when he was diagnosed, we sort of saw the change, you know, the overnight change in him. You know, he went from pretty happy-go-lucky to completely um, preoccupied with money and whether there'd be enough. Wow. That is an inspiring story from there. I, I, I'm really also wondering like then... If you lived out for another 30 years, there must have been a huge impact on, you know, how everything must have changed because if he was told he only had three months, he must have been doing whatever he could to provide. Oh, totally. You know, it, you know, you don't realize until you're staring death in the face what matters and, you know, I, you know, I think I, I think the lesson that I took from all of that was I never want to be in a situation where I've got to worry about money. Um, but uh, you know, I think it was probably more subconscious. Uh at the time, I don't remember being too, you know, obviously I was connected to the fact that he might not be with us for, for very long, but, um, you know, the fact that he um, went on to, I think he got the Guinness Book of Records, world record for um, survival with this condition past a certain point. So, um, yeah, it was it was a difficult time, but, you know, I, I never felt like I was missing out on anything or in need of anything. Kilkarni recounts some of the cultural differences that she remembers from her time growing up in the UK. Some lighthearted and some more serious. Look, it was very innocent. 
Um, one of the things that I love about the UK, which we don't seem to have here in Australia, is um, they provide hot school lunches. Um, it's just, it's almost as if that's the, um, that's the norm and only the posh kids got to bring a lunchbox with a sandwich and apple from home. You know, I, I remember begging my mum every now and then to let us take a lunchbox. Um, but yeah, otherwise we got, you know, even at the poorest of poor schools, they would, they would provide a hot lunch every day. And it was, you know, I guess, depending on the school, it was, it was really, it was either great or it was okay, but I, I have great memories of, um, the only thing I remember that left a very strong impression on me was, um, the liver that they used to serve with, um, with gravy. And that was, that was the only meal that we all used to balk at, but otherwise it was all really good food, but no, I've got, I've got great. I think the only probably dark cloud that I remember from that time is it was definitely a time of, um, I would say ethnic intolerance. And I do remember being teased quite a lot. And so I, and even, you know, at times when I was young experiencing sort of racism, but, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things. I think my nature is to focus on remembering the good stuff. So I have a bit of a shocking memory for, for specific bad experiences, but yeah, in general, I think it was a great experience. After moving to Australia, Kokani's family spent some time in Lithgow before moving to Canberra. Describing as a simple life at that time, she still feels that Canberra is one of the Australia's best kept secrets in terms of places to live. Look again, like Canberra has come a long way since um, since the early 80s. Uh, you know, I still, you know, perhaps I wouldn't have settled here if circumstances hadn't unfolded the way they did. But, you know, back then it was, um, it was just a, a nice place to live. It was very much a government town, um, very public service uh, sort of mentality. You know, there was a very, very small Indian community here. Everybody knew everyone. Uh, and, you know, I just, it was life as usual. You know, we, we rented for a long time and then eventually, I think later on we bought. But, you know, I, I have, uh, I had no ill feelings towards Canberra. But, um, yeah, my memory of Canberra was it was just a very, simple life, probably no different to many other towns. After graduating from high school, Kukani went on to study commerce economics at ANU and moved to Sydney. She would eventually get an exciting opportunity at an industry leading company. It was kind of like, you know, just uh, unconscious career, you know, involvement at that point. I did accounting as a stopgap, couldn't figure out anything else I wanted to do. So I thought I'll finish this you know, got a job offer at Deloitte at a time when jobs were pretty thin on the ground. There was, um, we were in a, the midst of a recession. Um, even at that time, Deloitte had just had massive redundancies internally. So, you know, we were bring, being brought on as the grads for slave labour. And, uh, you know, during that time, I, I definitely, um, I gave a pound of flesh for the first couple of years while I, I did my chartered accountancy designation and worked and, you know, it was really hard. Like, you know, it was fun. It was so much fun. But, you know, it was not uncommon to start work at 8 in the morning, finish somewhere between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m., go home, study, and then get up and do it all again. But I guess when you're, um, when you're young, you just, you just do it. Everybody else did it, so you just did it. Yeah. And when you think about it, when kids party, party hard and they go all night, <laughs> it's kind of no different in that sense because we can last for that long. I mean, not back then, but for us now, <laughs> I can't imagine doing that at all. 
Oh, there's no way. <laughs> no, I think I definitely bent through it, chewed through a lot of fuel at that point. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess from that point onwards, how long were you actually working at Deloitte's for? So I think I was there just over three years, got my chartered accountancy and then, um, you know, it was sort of a trend at that time to go overseas and do a gap year and I had um, gone into the workforce when a lot of my friends had gone traveling. So when I finished that, I decided to to go traveling the world. And, you know, I, I kind of feel like I might have done it the right way around because back then, you know, I had friends working in pubs and things like that for three to five pounds an hour. And I I went into the workforce as a chartered accountant and I was earning mega bucks doing amazing roles, like going overseas really gave me an insight into how the world sees Australians. Like we're definitely perceived as having a fantastic work ethic. And so it was very easy to be kind of pulled out as a, you know, a bit of a diamond in the rough amongst a whole lot of prospective employees. And, and you know, I got, I, I worked in some super senior roles for, for my age that I would never have had that opportunity to do if I was, if I'd stayed in Australia. So on, on the career level, the move overseas really catapulted my um, my career in terms of money and and work, and still gave me that freedom to to travel and and do what I wanted to do. So that was a fabulous experience, and I did that for another three and a half odd years before I kind of said, "Okay, I'll come back to Australia." Which countries did you go to while you're traveling for those or working? I worked in London. I worked in New York and Hong Kong, um, parts of Europe. Um, I, I worked for some big multinationals. Uh, I, I always found part of the challenge for me with accounting was um, I can do the detail. I just really don't enjoy it. Um, so the roles that I used to be attracted to were more where I was kind of like the liaison between the business and the accounting department or the business and the IT department. And um, I, you know, I think I've got a natural um, interest in problem solving and, you know, the the elegance of solutions. So, um, yeah, I found myself in lots of roles where um, I was sorting out problems. Coming up after the break, we hear about what sparked Kulkarni's decision to come back home after spending three years traveling overseas. My dad wasn't in the best of health and I kind of felt like I'd been away for over six years at that point and just wanted to spend a bit of time, a little bit of time here and, and maybe relocate. We learn about how her first property purchase was a fluke and turned out to be a gem, tripling in value at the time when others were doubling. Now, I'd done a bit of investing in terms of other markets, shares and things like that but that was the first property I bought and literally I got a friend to come around and see a bunch of houses with me and and it was at the beginning of the boom period. How a disastrous joint venture taught Kilkarni and her husband some painful lessons. John and I have worked through a lot to sort of mentally digest that but I think there's been so much gold from that experience you know now that you know that I look back because it just taught me a lot about you know things that might have been overlooked, um, precautions that could have been taken. And that's up next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory.
Hey, property investor, is your cash or equity currently earning you 1% to 2% per annum sitting in the bank? What if I said to you that you can do better? To find out more, simply register your interest to become a money partner at propertyinvestory.com. Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest to get a high return with low risk on their money for 6 months. Register your interest by visiting propertyinvestory.com. Although they didn't have any family around when growing up in London, Kukani still made the time to revisit her hometown while living in London as an adult. This was both a cathartic and melancholy experience. Uh, no family because and, and that was part of the challenge I always felt for my, for my parents were it was just the four of us. I mean, uh, we've got a, quite a bit of extended family settled here in Canberra now but um, you know, my parents had no support, no um, help from anyone. Um, so when I went back to the UK, I did go back to the town that I uh, grew up in which sadly had been extremely overdeveloped. Um, lots of new housing estates, lots of all, all the, the fields and trees and places that, that I spent time as a kid were all gone. Um, and the primary school felt like tiny, microscopic. I, I almost couldn't believe that, you know, that there were so many of us that fit in that school. But yeah, it was a, it was a really, I really loved it as an experience, but it was also sad to see, you know, I'm a, I'm a very um, sentimental and nostalgic kind of girl. And so, um, yeah, I, I definitely love my 70s music and, you know, love, love things from the past to be the way they were. I'm very much similar and I love the thing because I grew up in the 80s as well and, and every time I look back with my wife and have a look at the things that we grew up with, like, you know, there's 90s music and stuff like that, I'm going, wow, it is just so different to how it is now. And, you know, with my kids and stuff like that and I go, I wish you guys could try and appreciate what we had. I mean, we're just a simple telephone, you know, look at a mobile nowadays, it's like, for them, they take it for granted because it's got every on it. But back then, we were not able to just pick up a phone and instantly call and message people. You actually had to, you know, dial the phone, especially even with the internet when you think about it, that all those dial-up modem speeds, it took a while. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. A lot has changed. Wow. So, I guess going back over to London and experiencing for yourself what that was like, you obviously did a little bit of traveling and so forth and you did that for about three to three and a half years. Well, I guess what, why did you decide to come back to Australia after that time? Look, um, it was probably family-based. You know, my, my dad wasn't in the best of health and I kind of felt like I'd been away for over six years at that point and just wanted to spend a bit of time, a little bit of time here and, and maybe relocate. The plan had been to move to Sydney or Melbourne. Um, but, you know, as it turned out, I just found some interesting work here and that one thing led to another and then I just found myself staying here. And then my now husband moved here to be with me and set up his business here. So then we sort of got we got stuck. Um, but I, you know, life is long. There's plenty of opportunities and, you know, we're definitely entering another phase where we might see ourselves moving elsewhere. Who knows? During her travels, Kilkani learnt many things and was exposed to many different cultures. She found that it was a time of real personal growth. Look, I, I would say that the, the experience of being over there was phenomenal from a relationship building point of view. Um, you know, especially cities like London, which are such a melting pot of different cultures and different people. It's a very transient population. 
Um, so I think one of the big takeaways that I had from that experience is an, a, a capacity to cope with change, to roll with the punches, to understand that, you know, the one thing that's guaranteed is change. Um, and so I think from a personal resilience point of view, I grew up a lot in that time. I, I think up until that point, you know, to some degree I was, and I still am, I, I'm, I'm a little bit of an innocent. Um, I think back then it might have, people might have called it naivety. Um, so I'm less naive now. I'm still innocent, but less naive. Um, but I, I definitely think that experience of being out of home, having to figure out life as a grown-up for myself was, um, was re it's really when you decide who you're going to be and, and what matters to you and what your values are. Because when you're in a, an environment where you're being, um, I guess, invited into different people's worlds view, you, you, I think part of the, um, the challenge of, of young people in general is figuring out whether they align with that worldview or whether they feel differently. And um, I think when I was younger, I was, I was very impressionable. Um, but fortunately, I, I had a, enough of a moral compass to just keep me on an even keel. So, yeah, definitely a, a, a great period for personal growth and evolution. Kirkani had very clear goals of starting some businesses upon her return to Australia. With an entrepreneurial streak and already a ton of valuable experience, she found there was no time like the present. Part of the reason accounting never felt like a good fit was it's it lacks creativity. Um, you know, it, it's there's it's very black and white. It's very um, linear. I had uh, a couple of businesses that I started and then you know moved on from. Um, I started um, a day spa, which I looked into franchising and then sold that. So I did a bunch of a bunch of things that were kind of like, I guess, exploring what being an entrepreneur meant. I picked a lot of stupid businesses, like the day spa experience was seriously shaved five years off my life. Wow. Why? What happened then? Oh my God. Well, that was meant to be an experience of being the silent investor. And uh, just to give you context, two weeks before we were due to open, we'd done this beautiful fit out and got this premise and all this equipment and then two weeks before we were due to start the girl that I was uh, supposed to be partnering with said I've changed my mind I'm going overseas and uh, yeah I mean we had appointment books filled and it was a very very steep learning curve and I got to the point where by the end of that business I, I learned a lot um, but I also learned about staying in my lane because that was not my lane. I can totally understand. I mean, could that have happened? I guess they did. They did they invest any money into the business before they ran off? Or no, that's that's exactly it. it was I was the money, they were the skills, and uh, it felt like an equitable arrangement at the time. But I realised that you know, if you don't have skin in the game, it's a difficult partnership to um, it's a difficult partnership to have work. Yeah, I understand that and I've been in those situations before so I can feel for you. It's tough. It was tough, yeah. Kukani shares how she snagged her first property with the help of a very sympathetic real estate agent. With her only real experience of investing being in other markets and shares, this was a win. Uh, well, when I got back to Australia, I actually moved back in with my parents just because I, you know, that was my mo motivation for coming back to Canberra. And in an Indian family especially, the expectation is that you 
live with your parents. I mean, if they had their way, I'd live with them forever. Um, you know, they built this house with the, you know, fantasy that my sister and I would move in with them, with our husbands eventually. And, um, you know, I, as much as I love my parents at that time, it was like having a straight jacket on because, you know, my, my gorgeous mum would say to me at night, you know, what time are you going to be home? And, you know, are you in for dinner? And, and, you know, when you're used to just coming and going as you please, it just wasn't so much a restriction, but it definitely cramped my style. Um, so I think I lasted about a year and then they went away for a weekend and I went, oh, I'm going to start looking for a house. And at that time, uh, which was in 2000, the cost to own a house versus the cost of renting was about the same. So, you know, at that time I just went, oh, well, if it's about the same, I'll just buy. Literally, I got a friend to come around and see a bunch of houses with me and, and it was at the beginning of the boom period. I walked into the very first house on the very first day that I started looking and went, oh, this, this house has a lovely energy. And the real estate agent had been a single woman and had been taken advantage of and she felt very empathetic towards me. So she said, she whispered in my ear, Selena, this is what I think this place is worth. Why don't you put in an offer? And I, I mean, I didn't even have finance organized, nothing. And I put the offer in and, you know, I think that real estate agent might not have taken higher offers to the, um, to the owner to try and support me, but I got this house and it turned out to be an absolute gem. And uh, in the, you know, in the time that most properties doubled, this one trebled in value. So that was a fluke first purchase. Um, but after that, like, I think my, my now husband came to Canberra in 2001 and he was very clear that property was the pathway to growing wealth. And I was just like, nah, you know, whatever. And, you know, eventually when, you know, and he started buying a couple of properties and then eventually he hit his limit and needed my, cause I was, you know, working in management consulting at the time, earning a, a pretty good income. You know, he needed me to be part of the journey. Otherwise he couldn't do it. And he would put paperwork in front of me and I would blindly sign it. I literally just had no interest. And I was, the most important thing for me was I don't want to risk the house. So I don't know what, what we signed, but um, yeah, it was, a, it was, I had no interest um, until about 2004, at which point I went, crumbs, what, what have we done? What are, what are we doing? And I was pregnant with my first child and I thought, better have a look at this now. And once I started to look at what he was doing, you know, I, I realized what was happening and I kind of just, that was the point for me, you know, at the sliding doors moment of, okay, I need to give this more attention. And I set about like, I mean, I educated myself in every way possible. I bought courses. Uh, I, I met people. I looked everywhere. I found mentors, which is probably the, the, the biggest influencer for my success. And, um, yeah, I kind of said to my husband, step aside, I'll take it from here. And and uh, he was more than happy for me to do that. Uh, and yeah, that, that was kind of like the start of the journey. Gosh, that is amazing to hear. And I love to hear that from my wife too. <laughs> not, not letting her know. <laughs> wow, that's that's phenomenal. And, and what was your husband doing at that point in time? John is a chiropractor and he runs a really great business. He's very successful in what he does. 
but he's he's a he's got a different energy to me. He's very grounded. He he doesn't like to you know stretch himself or stress himself out. Whereas you know I've got the high energy, high excitement kind of personality. So um, he was more than happy for me to just take the reins and it kind of it became a bit of role reversal. It was me putting things in front of him to sign and just saying, oh, just sign here, please. And, you know, it's kind of been that way ever since. He just trusts me to, you know, that I've got the energy and the um, the experience now to just run with stuff. Having purchased her first investment property over 20 years ago, Kilkani's portfolio has gone up and down since then. Using those alternative methods that she teaches to her clients, she's currently more focused on simplifying her portfolio rather than its volume. To be frank, back in the year 2000, and I don't know if you appreciate this, but you could almost throw a dart at the map of Australia and do okay. So, you know, there's a lot of people who made a lot of money during that boom time and attribute it to high skill, but really it was for a lot of people, right place, right time. Her property journey was not always smooth sailing and she recalls a painful experience back in 2008 that probably caused the biggest fracture in their wealth creation to date. We had started to dabble in some small-scale developments and I got introduced to a fellow who uh, was, I don't know, claimed lots of things at the time but basically embarked on a joint venture with him developing a parcel of land on the central coast. It was huge and it would would have been very lucrative but you know even with all the due diligence I did all the legal documents I put in place um, I couldn't have anticipated that he would basically scam us and at that time we had just paid off our house we had quite a good portfolio of property and we were in this great position so what we ended up doing was uh, refinancing to, to do this development. It was a, it was a stretch for us. Um, it was a multi-million dollar subdivision and he basically fleeced us and took the lot. And uh, that was a very, very painful um, lesson to recover from. I mean, both financially, but also mentally. Wow. So, learning from that lesson there, and I mean, if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit more, sort of in a little bit more details behind it, how was this person able to just fleece and get away with all that? Because you know, it's, it sounds like you you sound like you're the type of person who would do a lot of due diligence to make sure you know you cover uncover everything. But how was that possible? He was very very clever. Um, so it it didn't happen overnight. Obviously, he spent you know quite a lot of time sort of uh, getting to know us, got to know my family, um, you know, almost took on a fatherly sort of, uh, I would say, demeanour with me and just talked a big game, uh, took me round to see deals which he claimed were his and, I mean, I, you know, I probably would have said that was the uh, the experience which was the end of my naive period in my life and I'm, I'm pretty vigilant. Like I did a lot of due diligence and the deal itself stacked up. But in the end, it was basically he had access to the funds and just drained them and, and took them. And then even after that happened, we tried to uh, go around and communicate and get the funds back. We got lawyers involved. We went to ASIC. We did all this stuff. But at the end of the day, ASIC said, small fry, we, we're not dealing with it. 
And the lawyers basically just said, you could chase this for a very long time through the courts and spend tens of thousands of dollars and not get the result. So we, we let it go. And, you know, John and I have worked through a lot to sort of mentally digest that. But I think there's been so much gold from that experience, you know, now that, you know, that I look back because it just taught me a lot about, you know, things that might have been overlooked, um, precautions that could have been taken, and certainly, you know, the journey after that point was, well, how do I recover from this? And luckily we had a bunch of other things happen that kind of helped us mend that that damage. But, you know, when you think back back to that point in time, several hundred thousand dollars was a lot of money back oh, then. Oh, yeah, for anyone. I mean, it's not... For anyone. Yeah. Even now that's a lot of money. But mm. back then, I mean, it really hurt us. I mean, we effectively lost our house. So, yeah, so that, that was a big one to recover from. But that's why now I'm such a huge advocate for people making sure that they digest the pain around any kind of financial loss because I've, you know, I've I've supported hundreds of investors whose relationships have broken down over insignificant sums of money because they just weren't able to digest the loss. So your relationship with money and your capacity to digest, you know, past pain and loss, and everybody loses money from time to time. If, if you don't, you're not really trying hard enough. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, that was kind of like there was a lot of lessons around both the due diligence side of things, the precaution side of things, and also just, you know, learning to pick yourself up, dust yourself off and move on. Just curious, what would you say would be would have been a precautionary lesson you could have done differently or lesson to learn from that? I think there was just nuances in the actual contract that could have been better dealt with. And if I'd really wanted to, I could have gone back and really um, had a go at the lawyer that we used. Um, so one thing is that I have now is, you know, I, I don't quibble with people on fees for anything. I just pay the fee because I want the the absolute best protection. Um, whereas, you know, when you start out, you, you, you know, sometimes looking to save money, cut corners, and you look for cheapest property managers, cheapest conveyances, cheapest legal support. And I just think you, you get what you pay for. So, um, you know, I, I've learnt through that experience that vetting deals and doing good due diligence is the cornerstone of getting the right results. I feel the same as well too. I've been burnt a few times by going for a cheapest option and it, you know, it comes to bite you in the end. You're thinking, yeah, you're saving a few bucks here and there. In the end, it costs you a lot more than a few dollars. 100%, yeah, yeah. I think you have to go through that lesson to really learn it. <laughs> exactly. So, inspired by Selena Kilkani's journey, we'll keep the conversation going in a future episode of Property Investory. We'll discuss what Kilkani has been doing for the past 15 years since she left the corporate world. I was an avid share trader. I've tried lots of things and then ultimately, as the property stuff just started to give the best returns, I just let go of everything else and just focused on that. We'll hear about some of the alternative strategies that her clients use to maximize their net worth in three steps. I think what happens is people kind of hang their hat on this idea that they have to be a certain net worth to have it be game over for them. 
And what I am uh, experiencing and what I'm doing right now is showing people you don't actually need as much of a net worth as you think. What exciting plans she's got for the next five to 10 years? I love the idea that I've got a plan A, B and C. Like it's kind of like plan A is I'm just continuing to build cash flow through these alternate strategies. And that's next time in a future episode of Property Investory. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.